Let us pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to trust in your Son alone, knowing that he and he alone has made us children of you. Let us add nothing to your gospel message. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I've somewhat accidentally ventured into a Lenten series that I didn't, didn't really know I was going to venture into, and I don't know that we'll stick with it for the rest of Lent, but I might call this series Our Tricky Lenten Passages. Three weeks ago, we had Jesus calling a woman a dog. Last week, we talked about sexual immorality, which is everyone's favorite subject, And this week, we have that somewhat uncomfortable epistle passage from from Galatians. Now, I start here because I think we often stumble across passages in Scripture that make us uncomfortable, and we, we sort of shuffle them away or don't think about them or some other thing. And I want to talk just for a moment or two about how we approach these uncomfortable passages. First of all, we're allowed to admit, well, this makes us a bit uncomfortable. I think that that's quite all right. But this does not mean that Scripture is unreliable, nor does it mean that Scripture scripture might contain something that is contrary to fact. We can read Scripture with trust that it is good, that it brings us the good news of the gospel, and that we meet our God in it. So what do we do when we come to a passage that makes it uncomfortable? First and foremost, we read it prayerfully. One of my favorite stories about this was from that time where I was the rector of a small church that sort of became embattled. And one of the biggest problems that they had was that I was very young for the position. I didn't entirely end up there on on purpose, but there I was. And as I was going through this season where lots of bickering and difficulty was happening, and lots of people were saying, well, you're too young for that position, the lectionary lessons for that season were 1 Timothy. And those of you who are familiar with 1 Timothy know where this is going. But those of you who don't know, Timothy was a young pastor himself, and one of the things that Paul says to Timothy is, let no one despise you for your youth. And here I was, a young pastor myself, being despised for my youth. And it was encouraging. And so we pray, read scripture prayerfully. We read the difficult parts and the easy parts with prayer and allow God to speak to us through the scriptures. Now the second thing we do when we come to a difficult passage is we read it studiously and curiously. We don't read through it quickly and just let it pass, but we read through it slowly. We do research. We look at the content. My suggestion is invest in a good study Bible like the ESV study Bible or the NASB study Bible. Both of these will help you answer good questions, answer questions and go deeper in your discussion of what scripture is trying to tell us. Finally, ask for help or discuss it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Join a Bible study, whether it be the ladies' or men's Bible study or another Bible study. And then ask questions of it. Not questions like, how does this make you feel? Because we might just say, well, uncomfortable, and move on. 
but ask hard questions. Like, why is Paul talking about this particular historical passage? And why does he talk about it in the way that he does? So in order for us to understand this particular passage, we need some historical content. Paul starts out the epistle, most of his epistles, with some sort of pleasantry. He writes to the Corinthians, I thank you, I thank God for you, and all these reasons that what God is doing in you, and other churches. But he skips these pleasantries in the Galatian, in his, in his epistle to the Galatians. And after a very brief greeting, he writes, I am astonished. Now, if your spouse walked in and said this to you, or perhaps your boss if you're still working, you know what's about to follow that is not going to be, I'm astonished that you're such a good worker. I'm astonished that you're so good at cleaning the windows. No, you know that what's about to follow, I am astonished, and we should say it that way, is not going to be a very fun conversation. So what is Paul astonished about with the Galatians? He continues in that verse, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace, in the grace of Christ, and turning to a different gospel. And the remainder of this, of this epistle goes after those who are calling them away to a different gospel and reorients them to the true gospel message. And so we have to have that in mind as we read this this morning because that sets the boundaries, sets the pace for what's about to come. Now the people that are adding to the gospel in the Galatian situation are adding with the law, specifically that in order to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. Now we could unpack all the problems there are with that, but that's not really the center of what we're trying to get after this morning. But there's a temptation today to add to the gospel. There's a temptation today to say that in order to be a Christian, you must. And it's not you must follow Jesus. You must follow Jesus and. And it's important that we bear that in mind, that we're not free from that temptation the way, in the same way that the Galatians weren't free from that temptation. And so we beg the question, are there ways that you've added to the gospel? I'm going to leave that question for you to hang on to as we continue to work through this passage. But St. Paul goes on, do you not listen to the law? Or perhaps another way to say it is, do you even understand the law? Thinking back to our angry spouse, St. Paul does in fact have a pastoral heart, but we know when we hear something like this, might be something like the, like the question, do you even know how to pick up socks off the floor? Or do you even know how to vacuum? It's not meant, it's, it's meant as a criticism. It's meant to draw them in to this problem. Paul is less gentle than he often is in his letters. Now, the Galatian church was most likely to have been largely Gentile, a Gentile community. So there's another thing that's going on here. Paul is reminding him, hey, you, you might read the law, but I understand it better than you. because I was a Pharisee. I know this better than you. But still, he chooses a story that we're probably all familiar with. Certainly the Galatians would have been familiar with it. <clears throat> but if we're not, let us talk about Abraham for a minute. 
Abraham is called away from his family to start a nation. He's told, go way over there and I will make you a great nation. This journey would have been a great journey, a journey of hundreds of miles away from his family, away from the comforts of his home. And he takes it up with faith and he goes. We might know the nuances of his story. Sometimes he's really faithful. Other times he does incredibly foolish things. And you're like, what are you thinking, Abraham? But by the time he and Sarah are old, they still have not had children. Now, I wonder if sometimes you or I doubt the gospel promise to us. Sometimes as I look at the world around us and look how long Christ has tarried, I wonder how long, how long, O oh Lord, must we persevere? What about you? It would be easy to fault Abraham. It would be easy to say, why would you do such a foolish thing, Abraham? God, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, has made a promise to you to make a great nation out of you. Why, when Sarah comes to you and says, here, have my slave, would you listen to her? But he does. And out of Hagar, he has a baby. Out of Sarah's slave. Now, we can already see the problems here. The central of which, of course, is he is doubting, doubting God's promise to him. But there are many others. But it's sufficient to say that Abraham sins grievously when he has that child with Hagar. But yet, God is still faithful. And out of Sarah, he has a child, as God has promised. <clears throat> when you think of your own salvation, when you think of your own redemption, do you think that it is done by your will and work or by God in Christ's will and work? St. Paul corresponds these two actions with Sarah and Hagar to that of slavery and Mount Sinai, and that of the free Jerusalem, which if we are in Christ, we are citizens in it. Now let the reader understand that when he refers to the law at Mount Sinai, even in the Old Testament, there is a tremendous amount of grace in that covenant. Think of Abraham alone, who is drawn out of his kingdom, drawn away from paganism, drawn into the covenant with God. There is grace in that. Abraham didn't do it on his own, but God did it for him. But the law does not set people free, but points to those, the one who would set them free, to make them citizens of the free Jerusalem above, in which we one day will enjoy living peacefully in God's perfect will, not the will of flesh or man. And that's what Paul is trying to draw out here. That by rebelling, Abraham makes, decides to follow his flesh. Not the will of God. Not the will of God that points, that points to God's goodness. But Abraham tries to do it on his own. And then we come to a poetic interlude. Uh, Galatians 4.27 quotes from Isaiah 54.1. 
and reads, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul and Isaiah are not trying to be insensitive here, but they're talking about a spiritual birth. Think about Christ. Think about who he was, the actual man of Christ. He never married. He was celibate. He was homeless. He wandered about and died alone. And yet, who are we in Christ? In Christ, we are made children of God. Christ has made a way for your adoption. Christ, who never married, never had a true home, has millions that he has brought, if not billions, into the church. Think about that. Think about that promise. Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more than those with, of one who has a husband. The church is massive over the centuries. Millions, if not billions, of children. And my friends, if you are in Christ, you are a child of this promise. You are a child of the work of Christ, not of the work of flesh. What good news is that? And you are free from needing to earn your place. Christ has already earned your place for you. The gospel is not Jesus and. The gospel is Jesus alone. Are there ways in which you've fallen into that temptation? Fallen into the gospel is Jesus and? Or is Christ's promise sufficient for you? If you understand this, can you therefore understand why St. Paul is so upset? To stretch the analogy of your spouse or your boss, it's as though they've given you clear instructions what needs to be done, and they've given it to you many times, maybe even written it down. They said, well, when you drop your socks on the floor, pick them up and put them in the laundry basket. And this is now the tenth time they're telling you to pick your socks up the floor, off the floor. We might understand why your spouse would be a bit annoyed at that point. St. Paul was clear about the gospel message, and yet they dropped the socks on the floor yet again. But if you embrace the gospel, if you follow it, St. Paul and Jesus and many others promise that persecution will follow. Because if you embrace the reality of that in Christ alone, you are set free from your sins, that you are made the children of God through this promise, you will be persecuted because some will think that's stupid. Some will think that insufficient and be offended when you say, no, no, that is sufficient. There will be some that will want you to conform to the world. How have you faced pressures to be conformed to the world? To be conformed to the world by saying Jesus and politics? To saying 
Jesus and some social pressure? Are there ways that you've added to the gospel because you felt these pressures from the flesh and the world around you? No, we are called to Christ and Christ alone. But perhaps you're wondering, well, I like these things. Or perhaps you're wondering, well, that sounds awful hard, so why bother? My friends, if you are in Christ, you are children of the promise. What good news. I can't imagine anything better. But there is the fact that there will be judgment. Judgment and mercy go hand in hand. Without judgment, you cannot have mercy. And without mercy, there is no judgment. And so we must have mercy and judgment. There is a joy and peace in knowing Christ holy. In a mad world where it seems like every moment when you turn on the TV or pick up the newspaper or just look at news online, there's more and more bad news. There's peace in knowing Christ because we have the faith and confidence to know the ending. Christ has died. Christ is risen, is the Easter song. Christ will come again, is the Easter promise. Christ will come again to make all things right. What good news is that? And it is in the new heavens and the new earth that all will be made right. And that is the Jerusalem above, which St. Paul refers to this morning, where the wrongs and the pains of this life will be put away, where we will be fully alive in Christ, where we will live in his will perfectly. What good news. And so, my dear friends, Make your hope in Christ steadfast. Do not add to the gospel in whatever way may be tempting, but trust in him alone. Trust in him alone and not in your flesh, for you are children of the promise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.